Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. And if you've been with us for the last number of weeks, you'll know the, the exclusive claims that Jesus has made. And as I was reviewing and thinking about this morning... I was just struck afresh by how much of a paradox Jesus is in many ways. Two seemingly opposing things true at the same time. Where Jesus is incredibly humble in action. Anonymously removes the bridegroom's shame at the Cana wedding. The woman caught in adultery is incredibly compassionate towards... Even the man born blind on the side of the road, God, Jesus, stoops down and meets him where he is. Incredibly humble in action, but yet there's no modesty in his speech. There's no modesty in his speech. Multiple times he declared his oneness with the Father. John 8 says, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Later in John 8, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the crowd picked up stones to kill him. And in John 10, he says, It's I that give eternal life. And it's I and the Father that are one. All of the I am statements of Jesus use the definite article. That's an English grammar refresher for some of us. I slept through most of English um, and I skipped most of French class which has got even more definite and indefinite articles. But the is very specific. There's no, there's no ambiguity. Where if we said ah, if Jesus said, I am a bread of life, I've a, I'm a sense of nourishment. But he says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus didn't say I'm a gate. That would be a little bit humble. He said, no, I'm, I'm the gate for the sheep. The is included in all of Jesus's I am statements. Every single one is an exclusive claim. It's almost exactly like Isaiah 46 verse 9 where he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Jesus doesn't leave us the option to just like him. We can't simply be a fan of Jesus. The claims he made are controversial. You have to find yourself on one side of the fence or the other. You simply cannot straddle the fence. He can't be dismissed or ignored. His claims demand a response. Embrace or reject. Crown him or kill him. But we cannot simply ignore what he has said. He doesn't leave room for us just to like him and call him a wise sage. As C.S. Lewis famously said, he's either liar, a lunatic, or Lord. There's only the three options. He can't simply be a nice guy when he makes exclusive claims like that. And you might say, well, that's really clear that all of these claims are exclusive. But what I'm hopeful is that we'll see 
again, this paradox of who Jesus is that as incredibly and radically exclusive as these claims are, it's also wonderfully inclusive. Wonderfully inclusive. I love how Jesus' statement here, the part that we underline in our Bible and, and is well known by many, whether or not you're a regular churchgoer or not, is in response to a question asked by Thomas. Thomas kind of just volunteers to be the spokesperson for everybody. Have you ever been in that group? And it's like something is said and you're like looking around and like, I don't, and, 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 and I don't think everybody understands what was just said, but I'm just going to pretend and I think between the group we'll figure it out. You ever been in that group? Thomas isn't just content to not know. He's like, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know how to get there? And Jesus responds, and he says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can I encourage you, if you're sitting here today with questions for Jesus, you really want to know the answer, my encouragement is, the evidence is there, Jesus answers questions. If you want to know what Jesus says and who he is, inquire of him. He himself says, ask, seek, knock. And as a preacher, I'm really thankful Jesus has given us three points to go through. The way, the truth, and the life. We're going to unpack each one and then land and then trust that we'll see, again, this radical exclusiveness of who Jesus is but also this wonderful, wonderful inclusiveness. The way. Every form and system of religion claims to know the way. How to find and to reach God. It all, they all include a path or a program or a set of rules or a pattern, all with do's and don'ts. Do's and do nots. And always the plan and the program takes precedent in his first place ahead of the person that founded the plan. But here, Jesus says, I am the way. He doesn't say, here's the way. He doesn't say, do this and go this way. He says, I am the way. Jesus is not a prophet or a sage or a guru that just tells us the way to go. He doesn't give us five pillars or four noble truths and an eightfold path, nor does he give us 613 laws of achieving and maintaining righteousness where in all of those things, salvation and fullness of life is 100% based on your effort with absolutely zero assurance that you can do it. That's what all those other paths and patterns and programs offer because they're all a way that we must go. Jesus says, I am the way. The way is a person. 
he says is kind of read, you believe in God, believe in me also. The way is a person. By way of illustration, have you ever been traveling? We've had the privilege of doing some traveling and, and, and you say you're in an unfamiliar city and you stop and ask directions. It doesn't happen to me very often. Anyone's been stopped in New Zealand like by somebody visiting Hamilton or Norwahi and asked for directions? I don't find it happens that often. But when you're traveling you, and you stop and ask somebody for directions and because uh, they're from there and they say, okay, so what you want to do is go straight ahead for three blocks and then when you see the petrol station, turn left, go down to the fish and chip shop, turn right, then go straight on for a couple more minutes and you should be there. The way is described for you and you are very careful to remember when, how far you're supposed to go, when you're supposed to turn, what are the landmarks. But getting to your destination is 100% dependent upon your ability to remember the instructions and obey them. And how often do you get lost when you have those, ins those instructions? Now, if you're on holiday or touring, we might get to find some place you, you weren't really looking for, and that sounds like a little bit of fun. But if you really want to get somewhere, and it's a really important place, it can get pretty stressful when you don't know the way and you get lost. Contrast that with when you ask somebody, and they say, oh yeah, I know where that is. I've got nothing on. I can take you there. Come with me. All of a sudden, you're having a conversation with the person that knows the way, and you're not paying attention to how many blocks you've gone before you turned. You wouldn't even have noticed the fish and chip shop unless you smelled it. And then you arrive at your destination comfortable and unstressed. Because <clears throat> the way is no longer a set of instructions that you just simply have to follow. The way is a relationship with the person that knows the way and has been there before. And the success in reaching your destination is no longer 100% dependent upon you. It's dependent upon the one who is taking you there. Jesus says, I am the way. That's why we as a church, we gather around Christ. It's a core part of our mission as the village churches. We gather around Christ. He is the way. He says that he is the truth. All through scripture, Jesus claims divinity. Oneness with God. Compared himself even to God in sending the prophets and wise men of the past. You can read that in Matthew 23. Psalm 43 says, Send me your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. The Israelites sought wisdom, sought truth, sought knowledge. And many have come and claimed to tell the truth, but they all pointed to the one who embodied truth. Only Jesus embodied truth. John 1, 1, turn there. John 1, 1, in the beginning. Let me read from here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God and the Word what was God. He was in the beginning with God. And 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, word there is the is the original Greek word is logos, and we haven't got time to unpack it all. But philosophers, theologians, deep thinkers for the last hundred several um, centuries all agreed that the logos means the truth, the center, the reason underneath the reason. That reason underneath the reason, that truth, that center that was eternal before became flesh and dwelled among us, full of grace and full of truth. That's how Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the invisible God of Colossians 1, made visible. He is the exact radiance of God. The exact imprint of His nature, it says in Hebrews. Jesus is the truth. And His life is the proof. Because can you imagine, because all others are imposters and have proven false over time. But Jesus, his life, is the proof. Because what he taught, he lived. No other man can claim that perfectly. And now it doesn't matter so much if you're teaching maths or physics or how to conjugate vowels, whether or not your moral character stacks up to what you say. Because you're teaching physics and how to conjugate vowels. But can you imagine an adulteress teaching on purity or a greedy person teaching on generosity or an angry person teaching on forgiveness or a vengeful person teaching on love, the message has lost all its validity and all of its truth because the life doesn't match the message. That's not the case with Jesus. He was like us in every way, tempted in every way, yet without sin. His message on love, he lived. His message on forgiveness, he lived. His message on meekness, he lived. Jesus says, I am the truth. He didn't simply teach the truth, he showed the truth in his life. Now, we live in 2023, and in a culture that's a few hundred years downstream of the Enlightenment, that says, well, there is no absolute truth, there's just all these small t truths. What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and never the twain can meet, and that's okay. Well, that's, that's the water we swim in, and we think we've moved a long way from the early church 2,000 years ago. 
but we haven't so much. There was a, a pluralistic society, a multiple different beliefs and faiths in the early church. But it's amazing how the first century Christians who this was written to and read, they, they were killed not because they worshipped Jesus as God. They were killed by the Romans because they worshipped Jesus only as God. They accepted the truth as he was the only truth. See, Caesar couldn't tolerate that worshiping one God only. It counted as treason. If they worshiped Jesus and Caesar, they'd have gone unharmed. But they rejected all forms of syncretism, adding to their worship of God. They allowed no mixture. All the other gods were seen as false gods, as small t truth, not all subservient to capital T truth in Jesus. And they risk being alienated and ostracized and even killed to maintain exclusivity of Jesus as the truth. 2023, we risk being alienated, ostracized here in New Zealand to maintain the exclusivity of Jesus as the truth. But he's proven it through his life. He's proven it through his death, and he's proven it through, ultimately, his resurrection. He told the disciples, he said, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you. I'm going to the Father. I'm going ahead of you to prepare a room for you. And don't worry, I'm coming back for you. Only an alive Savior can do that. And only just days after he addressed, he told his disciples this, he was killed, was buried, and was resurrected three days later. Jesus is the truth. Can I say now, you think, oh, well, unlike the early church, we, we didn't have the, the risk of the government or the, the ruler of the day requiring us to offer a pinch of incense at an altar. We don't tend to set up shrines. And if I'd been a bit more organized, I would have put a picture up there. While we were in Vietnam, Terry and I took some holiday time after, um, after our time in Indonesia, celebrated 24 years of marriage, um, quite amazingly. Um, and But everywhere in Vietnam, a strongly Buddhist community of people and little shrines everywhere like with fruit and vegetables and beer and Coke set alongside their shrines. I'm thinking, it's, it's thirsty and there's no, but would they mind? They're not gonna drink it, obviously. It's just sitting there by the shrine. Now we don't have shrines in New Zealand in the same way, but we have all manner of things that we create as idols, as things to worship. Our culture says you must bow down to these things. You must offer some form of worship to those things. And our hearts are drawn that way. But if we set anything up in our lives as a small g God and worship it alongside Jesus, it will ultimately fail us. Only Jesus is the truth. If we set up and start to worship money and things, we'll never have enough. 
if health and beauty is the thing that we start to worship, one day when age and gravity starts to take over, we die a million deaths long before we physically die. If our intellect is the thing with which we strive towards and is an identity, what happens when that one day starts to fail? Or even work and productivity is part of our identity and that which we um, sacrifice for, ultimately that too will come to an end. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. It's like Elijah said on Mount Carmel, how long will we go on limping between different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. Jesus doesn't give us the option to just say we're a fan. He says, crown him or kill him. Jesus says, I am the truth. And he lived it as evidence he's trustworthy. That truth is incredibly exclusive. Incredibly exclusive. I'm not going to go there. Um, in, in the world we live in, can I encourage you? Just, this is a helpful thing. And, and I know many of us are having conversations with lots of people. And you might be even sitting here like, well, hold on. How can you make that kind of exclusive truth claim? Maybe, maybe you've, said, you've heard that saying like, well, someone says, oh, well, no, all religions lead to the same place. They're all talking about the same God. It's just we've all got a different hold of a different part of the elephant. The person that's holding on to the trunk says, oh, God's a bit like a hose. Or the person that's holding on to the leg, no, he's more like a tree. And the one holding on to the tail, he's like, no, more like a rope. And, and that is ridiculous in the extreme because the person that's making that truth claim that says that God is just this big elephant and we're all just see a different part of him, they're making an exclusive, exclusive truth claim that they're standing far enough back that they can see this elephant. They're the one making the truth. No, no, we're all heading this same direction. No, we're not. Jesus is the only one that said, I am the truth and backed it up with his life. Something for notes and uh, happy to unpack a little bit more later. But the test of any truth claim of a belief system can be measured against four basic questions. What is its origin? How does it produce meaning? What is the underlying morality? And where does it take you? What is its destiny? Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. If you're having a conversation with someone that says, well, I don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. Well, well what do you believe? Well, test it against those four things and see if it stacks up. See if it, when everything, because remember the context of this, the, the disciples, their world is about to collapse into chaos. God displays his mercy and his grace to them, and it does to us. At some point in our lives, everything will collapse into chaos when we cannot control it. It'll happen possibly multiple times through our life, but certainly at our death, we can't do anything about that. And Jesus, in his great kindness, says, you believe in God, believe in me also. Everything else that we hope and pin our hopes on will ultimately fail if it's not Christ. Because Jesus says, He is the life. John 1 verse 4, In Him, Jesus, was life, 
and that life was the light of men. To be human is to be on a quest, to be leaning forward in search of fullness of life. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. A well-worn verse that we may know or have seen on any number of different posts, it says that he, God, put eternity in the hearts of man. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Our quest in our heart, all human hearts, is for God. Because there is something innate in our nature. He created us that way. We were designed for eternal life. In the garden, we were permitted to eat from the fruit of the tree of life. That was God's original intent. And in his great grace... When we stuffed it up, as Ralph said in the prayer meeting this morning, when the first Adam stuffed it up, God in his great grace made a plan to restore us to eternal life. Jesus says he is the life. 1 Corinthians 15. We don't have time to turn there. But God in his great grace has come to restore that which was lost through the disobedience of the first Adam. And God came in Christ as our new Adam through his obedience to restore us. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45 to 49 says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man from the dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those that are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus is our new Adam. We're in him. He is the life. He is the life. Can you see how radically exclusive the truth claims of Jesus are? He doesn't give us the option to simply be a fan or to like him. He requires a response. No one comes to the Father except through me. But I hope, can you see? Can you see it? How radically and wonderfully inclusive the claim of Jesus is as being the way, the truth, and the life. John, again, God's grace to us in John chapter 20, verse 31, he tells us why he recorded what he recorded. In John 20, verse 31, he says, All these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, by believing, you may have life in His name. Not by doing. Not by doing. Not by being good enough. Not by knowing enough. Not by giving enough, not by sacrificing enough, by believing you may have life in his name. 
all through grace. By faith in Christ. How wonderfully inclusive. How wonderfully flat is the ground at the foot of the cross. I didn't have to be born a Jew. Doesn't matter my ethnicity. I have availability to life in Christ. Doesn't matter my education. Doesn't matter my family background. Doesn't matter my wealth. Doesn't even matter what I've done. It's by believing in his name that I have life. How wonderfully inclusive is Jesus. That's why the gospel is good news. It's an announcement. It's an announcement that God has come in Christ. It's an announcement that Jesus, the Savior, has come. It's not a list of instructions. It's an announcement. It's not a list of do's. It's a rather a declaration of what's already been done by Jesus on our behalf. It requires a response from us. If we haven't yet, if you're sitting here and you haven't yet met Jesus and believed in Him, today could be that day for you. If you're inquiring and asking questions, God, who are you? Jesus, who are you? What did you do? Why did you do it? Can I encourage you? Ask those questions. Not just directly of God, but journey with somebody. Come and ask me. Come and ask Dave. Come and ask anybody that's walking with Jesus for more than 10 minutes. Which is many of us in this room. And the wonderful part is it also demands a response from us that maybe have been walking with him for 10 minutes or 10 days or 10 years or 50 years. Because it makes us the most humble and gracious people on the planet. Or at least it ought to. And sometimes I confess I need to be reminded of that. Because none of us came to the position of life in his name because of how smart we were or how much we sought God or anything else. It was all by his grace. Can I invite Jody and the music team back up? And I'm just going to read. We're going to sing as we finish. But I'm going to read. Uh, and if I can invite you to your feet, please, if you're able to. I'm going to read Titus chapter 3. Just a few verses. As part of our response, if you've been walking with Jesus for some time, this just crystallizes for me something of our heart's response. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior 
so that being by being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life lord we thank you